6, please, Romans chapter 6, and tonight it's my goal to finish the chapter, verses 15 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verses 15. Paul says in verse 15, What then shall we sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free. In regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just a quick pass-by, or a quick review, after an extended introduction, Paul introduces the theme of the letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the righteousness of God, and introduces how that righteousness is obtained through faith. At least there's an introduction to that concept. He then moves to the need for justification by faith, that's in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, concluding in the end that all have a need for justification. Then in 3.21 through 5.21, Paul explains what justification is and then how it is received. And now, in in chapter 6 through 8, we're dealing with the sanctification question, or how does this affect me? In Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us, I can say no to sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us, even though I can say no to sin, oftentimes I don't say no to sin. And then in Romans chapter 8, he explains to us that it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enables me, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to say no to sin. We spent a significant period of time on Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, establishing the fact of two representative headships. And I think we pretty well have that now. Adam and Christ. Adam disobeyed and death entered. Christ obeyed and life came into the picture. So, I hope by spending some time on that, we laid a foundation that we can now use in Romans chapter 6 through 8 so that we might understand what Paul is saying here. Without that, I don't think you'll get Romans chapter 6 through 8. Now, in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14, Paul responds to an objection that the very abundance of God's grace in Christ actually encourages sin by arguing that Christ, in fact, sets the believer free from sin. The believer is freed from sin's domination because, Paul says, we were buried and raised with Christ. And now tonight, in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul responds to a similar objection by emphasizing the flip side of this freedom from sin, which is slavery to God and to righteousness. The believer is a slave 
to God's righteousness because he has been freed from enslavement to sin. Slavery imagery will dominate this paragraph, and slavery, I understand, is a sensitive topic, but it is a real issue in the scriptures. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Lewis is right. No human being, no human being aside from our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is fit to be the absolute master over anyone else. But God is. And that's where we have to take our sensitivities about the whole idea of slavery and set them aside for just a moment, understanding who our master is. Let's face it. If someone was to, tonight, reinstitute slavery in our country, and you were to become my property, one of my slaves, you better do some praying. (laughs) Because as much as I may love you, I'm still a fallen human being. So I'm going to be an imperfect master. And there will be things that are done that would be wrong and, and, and possibly even hurtful, even if I wasn't purposefully doing it. But when you're the slave of Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about that. So while we have sensitivities about slavery, don't be afraid of calling yourself a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul was not afraid to do that. In fact, when he writes his letters from prison, you remember what he says? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And almost every letter he starts out by saying, Paul, a servant. That word is the same word in the Greek language that we have for slave, doulos. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. I hope that we can say, unashamedly, we're slaves of Jesus Christ because I can think of no greater master. I would, would, to an infinite degree rather be a slave of Jesus Christ than to consider myself free in any other sense. In fact, Paul's going to tell us tonight we really don't have a choice between being a slave of Jesus Christ and then perhaps some sort of neutral freedom. He says we're, we're a slave whether we like it or not. Maybe you caught it as we read through this passage. Paul tells us tonight that you're a slave of one person or one entity or another. You're either a slave of Jesus Christ, of God and His righteousness, or you're a slave to sin. One or the other. He allows for no middle ground. Now, I don't know if you realize that we are in the middle of a sanctification section of the Word of God, and this particular concept is huge. I mean, it's massive. It's incredible. There is no theological middle ground. Whether we like it or not, We are slaves, and we will serve one of two masters, either God and His righteousness, or we will serve sin. There are only two choices. This shouldn't be a new concept for most of you, I I trust, especially those of you who are with us through the study of 1 John. Sin and fellowship. You recall in 1 John, we're not compatible. If one sinned, we would, if a believer sins, we would lose, we do lose fellowship with God, that koinonia relationship, that close, intimate, personal relationship. But we don't lose our position with God. We lose our fellowship, but not our position. And the classic example of that is the marriage relationship. 
one party in the marriage may make the other party unhappy for some reason and lose fellowship so that both parties are no longer in fellowship, but you're still married. Positionally, you're still married, while there may not be that close, intimate, personal relationship that you desire to have. And unfortunately, sometimes marriages stay that way for years and years, and they never recover. Sometimes believers stay that way for years and years, and never recover. Although positionally still in Christ, they're not functioning under their new nature. So it shouldn't be a brand new concept. In the book of Galatians, Paul speaks of a peripheral concept. Remember, he spoke of works of the flesh, but fruit of the Spirit. You never hear of the fruit of the flesh, by the way. It's always works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes works of the Spirit, but you never hear of fruit of the flesh. These two things are mutually exclusive as well. Either the Spirit is working through you, or the flesh and Satan is working through you. So, this shouldn't be a brand new concept, but Paul puts a little different spin on it. In Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks of the same dichotomy between fellowship and a loss of fellowship, between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, but now he's using imagery of slavery either to righteousness, to God and His righteousness, or to sin. The important thing, please Remember this as we pass through our time here tonight. The important thing is that this is no different, essentially, from John's message in 1 John. There is no mediating position here. There's no middle ground. According to John, you're either in fellowship with God or you're out of fellowship with God. According to Paul, you're either a slave to God and His righteousness at any one particular moment, or you're a slave to sin. Remember those two things, and I think that you will get this. Now, you may want to say, because we love freedom. I mean, I love freedom. Uh, so we might want to, within our soul, object and say, now, hold on, I don't, I'm not a slave to anybody or anything. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. But Paul, writing for God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begs to differ. And he says, wrong to that idea. Wrong, my friend. We are all slaves. It's just who our master is going to be at any one particular moment. The wonderful thing here that Paul introduces us to us tonight is that we can choose our master. Those who were slaves in our country's past didn't get to choose their master, at least not in any case I've ever heard of. Those who were slaves in the ancient world, ordinarily there were exceptions. Ordinarily didn't get to choose their master. And I think it's part of the exception that Paul is playing off of here tonight. So let's get into the passage itself. In verse 15, the first part, Paul says, What then, what shall we say? Shall sin, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Does this remind you of the early part of the chapter? Well, well it should, because Paul's done it again. In the first part of the chapter, actually at the end of chapter 5, Paul essentially states, I use my words now, not his, that you can't out the grace of God. Where sin increased, the grace abounded all the more. And then so there were some people that were going to object or, or insert false theology, false application of theology rather, that, and it always happens. Well, then let me just sin some more so that grace will abound because I thought grace was a good thing. Paul says, no, no, no. You've died to sin. You're not under that old headship anymore. You don't live like you were under that headship. Now, if you were here with us that night and you got that concept, 
I don't mean to oversimplify this because, frankly, this is a, a relatively complicated passage. But if we were to do our job correctly, we can take complicated theological truths and boil them down to st- in, into a simplistic presentation. I never am implying that the truth itself is is a, a simplistic. But remember, the scriptures were written by God, the Holy Spirit, to communicate to a wide variety of people, not just to the intellectual elite. So if we can get the concept that just because grace abounded doesn't mean you're supposed to sin a whole lot more because we've died to that old nature, I believe you'll have the concept of the entirety of Romans chapter 6. Now he comes back to this again because in in chapter 6 verse 14, I'm sorry, verse, um, verse 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So now another objector comes up and says, Shall we sin then because we're not under law, but under grace? Now, this is a little bit more of a, perhaps a pertinent, in our particular society and culture, it's a more of a pertinent objection than the first one. We all laugh at that first one, don't we? That's ridiculous. But the second one may, be, may hit a little bit closer to home. Let me tell you how. In our church, we hold what's called dispensational theology. We see a distinction between different eras in human, errors of, in human history, era, it's of human history. For example, we see a clear distinction between Israel and the church. I see other distinctions as well, but, but we, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. We see that. One of the distinctives of dispensationalism is that we do not believe that we're under the Mosaic law anymore. Because we don't believe, and because we believe the scriptures say that, because we don't believe that we're under the Mosaic law, we have been accused at least as people who would hold to a dispensational framework of being antinomian. Now, I will plead guilty to that under one condition, that we understand that word antinomian means we're not under the Mosaic Law. But that's not what people mean, so I'm not going to plead guilty to that. What they mean is that we don't think that there's any law in the church age. There's no, there's no law in the New Testament. Well, that's just patently absurd. Of course we believe there's law. Paul believes there's law. He has just given three commands before he ever gets to that passage where where he says we're not under law but under grace. If if a command, my friends, is a law, it's a rule, it's a regulation, and there's nothing else to call it. So sure, Paul understands that we are under some sort of law. We have law, but that's not the abiding principle in our life anymore. And because it's my objective to, to cover... The, the rest of the entirety of chapter 6 tonight, and this subject is going to come up again in chapter 7, I'm going to postpone any further discussion about us not being under the Mosaic Law, but being under grace until we get to chapter 7. But Paul says this is silly. Uh, this is a very strong negative, meganoito. It's the strongest way Paul could say no in the Greek language. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it any stronger than that. No, you still have rules and regulations. It's just that the Mosaic Law, in particular, actually any law in the context, but we'll talk about that later, is is not the operative function in our life now. So then he explains it in verse sixteen. Don't you know? Haven't you been taught? If if Jesus was saying this, he'd say, "Are you ignorant, my brethren?" Jesus didn't mind saying that. But don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. And you'll notice that that's a question. The key term in this verse is paristomene. It's a very rich word. 
in its entirety of its meaning, kind of like the Hebrew word chesed, it's difficult to describe with just one English word, but here, in this passage, it means to deliver a person into the control of someone else. To deliver a person into the control of someone else. Now, I want you to look carefully and see who's doing the delivering here. Read the text again with me. Do you not know when you present yourselves? You know what? You get to choose. Now, this is different than the slavery that we might have in our mind, but you get to choose who your master is going to be. Now, positionally, you've already done this. Again, I refer you back to what we put on the board so many times with the headship of Adam or the headship of Christ. And in this passage, the reason it can be a little difficult, and I admit that it can on first glance, first read, is that Paul speaks in this section, verses 15 through 23, both of this positional relationship that we have, that we've, we're no longer under Adam's headship anymore. He speaks of that, and then he also speaks of the concept of So now that you're not under that headship anymore, you need to choose to live like it. It won't be automatic. That's silly. That's a theology that is more and more prevalent in our culture today, in our Christian culture, that you will automatically choose to to live as a slave of righteousness. But Paul wouldn't have agreed with that theology. He says that we ourselves have to present. So... It's a bit of a military term too, but but do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey. It's a fairly straightforward concept. We're the ones making the choosing. We're the ones making the choice. Slavery, as most of us understand, involves someone else making the decision for us. But that's not the case here. Paul's original readers lived in a world where slavery existed for the most part, for the most part, in a different form from the slavery that comes to mind when we reflect on the issue. Slaves could be gained by purchase or by military conquest, but in the ancient world, people sometimes sold themselves into slavery, voluntarily sold themselves into slavery as a way of avoiding financial disaster. We don't have that anymore. Kind of glad that we don't. But that is one concept of slavery that I want to introduce you to tonight so that you can see, if you're an original reader reading this, that you do know that that type of slavery exists. So when Paul says, listen, you're going to choose your master, then it's not such a wild concept to the original reader. So with that piece of history behind us, we can see what he's saying. You choose. Now, you're, you're already in Christ. You, you have a, incredible blessings by being in Christ. You can never lose that position. But, to borrow John's term, you can lose the fellowship. It's your choice. Every time you sin, you make that choice. We make that choice. At the end of the sentence, Paul inter- brings up this word, or the, toward the end of the sentence, result, resulting in death. Now, this is a word that's going to be relatively prominent as we go through these verses. Paul does not specify here what kind of death he has in mind. And we've studied before, there are many kind of deaths in the Bible, and it's always helpful to try to narrow it down some. But in these verses, verses 15 through 23, I don't want to narrow it down further than what Paul would have wanted us to narrow it down. There is a death spiritual death, eternal spiritual death 
for everyone who remains associated with Adam. But the text also speaks of a death for those who are associated with Christ. It's not the same death. That kind of death is a loss of fellowship. Also in Romans, it's unavoidable for us to come to the conclusion that there are times when Paul uses the term death and sin together. He's referring to physical death. So we have to put it all in a package and realize that for the unbeliever, yes, it's, it's eternal separation from God. That's, what the ty- that's the type of death that will ultimately be the fate of the unbeliever. But when the believer is in view in the passage, he's speaking of a loss of fellowship, that kind of death. And he'll bounce back and forth between them, and I'll try to help you keep them straight. Then he ends up with one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, perhaps a verse that you memorized early on. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's swapped back to a positional issue there. Now let's look at verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. These verses are speaking of our position in Christ. Did you see that? Back to verse 17. Thanks to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient. So there was a time that you were obedient. Paul speaks in other places about being obedient to the gospel. It's a one-time event. You obey the gospel and you trust. You make a decision to trust Jesus Christ. That's called being obedient to the gospel. So there was a time that his readers were obedient as believers in Jesus Christ, and I can say that to us as well tonight. Thanks be to God that though we were all slaves to sin, we became obedient. The next phrase is an interesting phrase. I don't have a lot of time tonight to work with it, but it's from the heart. You ever wondered how the heart got introduced into soteriology? And talk about people talking about believing with your heart? Well, this is one of the passages where it comes up. It's not a wrong thing if we understand that the heart is the seat of the soul in Paul's theology here. And so from our whole being, Paul says, we believe in Jesus Christ. We don't hold anything back. We became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. The form of teaching he's speaking of here is the gospel presentation. And in verse 18, now that we've been freed from sin, then we've become slaves of righteousness. So Paul, in verses 17 and 18, spoke of those who had at one time been slaves of sin, but had subsequently become servants of righteousness. He's, of course, using an illustration, namely that of someone who's been transferred from one master to another. Now look at verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms. I'm I'm having to use this illustration now for you because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul understood that this was challenging. It looks like when he wrote it, he understood that this was going to be a challenging concept. So he uses this whole slavery illustration. Now he says in the last part of verse 19, For just as you presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The first part of the verse is positional. But what's the second part? It's experiential. Right. He's saying because we've already made this decision to trust Christ and we're no longer under the headship of Adam, live like it. Because... We can say no to sin. One of the primary messages of Romans chapter 6. Romans 7, we don't do it as often as we ought to. 
Romans 8, we can do it because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I also want you to see, Paul believes sin is pretty destructive. When we, when we presented our members as our, our bodily parts, our arms, our legs, our mouth, our feet, the Old Testament is full of this kind of imagery. You know, the, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. You know, a mouth that speaks falsehood, feet that are quick to run into bad situations. And so Paul picks up on that. He says, when we present our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, it doesn't just stop there, does it? Oh, we'd love to think it does. We'd love to just walk over to the river of sin and just put our little toe in because we remember how fun it used to be. I mean, how enjoyable that used to be back when I was identified with Adam. And so if I could just go do it just a teeny little bit. When Harold Honer presents this, Harold Honer the, was the former chair of the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary. I believe he's, he's not doesn't hold that position anymore, does he? But when he used to present this, he, he would present this in sermon form by saying, Is it ever okay to sin just a little? You know, the reason you're chuckling is because we all thought about this from time to time. Because we've got this, we've got this incredible recovery mechanism, don't we? This, this grace thing that God did that says, well, if you do fail, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore you to fellowship if you'll just come to me and confess. So, boy, there's this thing in the back of our heads. It says, boy, I know I can get back if I do it. That looks awfully good. Okay, I'm just going to stick my toe in. problem is you stick your toe in, and that's not where it ends, is it? No. You, sooner or later, you dive headfirst with a belly flop into the river of sin. That's why he says the impurity leads to further lawlessness. And later he's going to say, you didn't have any fun in there, did you? Not really. Sin never brings the result that you really want. In fact, now that you are not under that old headship anymore, you look back at those things and you you don't really want to talk about them. Why? Because you're a bit ashamed of them. Read along with me then. So, he says that this... Impurity will result in further lawlessness. Now, present, and this is another command, so again, I, I implore you, don't think that there's no law, little l, in the New Testament. Of course there's law. Was there grace in the Old Testament? You better say yes. In fact, Dr. Allen, who I appreciate so much the warm reception that you gave him, it was very encouraging to him, wasn't it? I mean, he, he went on and on about that about the reception that he received here. And I'm grateful to you all for the love that you showed him. A book that he's writing now. Now, he can't write while he's teaching because of the, the headache situation. But once he gets back to Oregon and cleans out that garage, if you remember that, he's going to be sitting down and finishing a book called that's entitled, at least the working title is, Grace, Always Grace. And he's going to demonstrate in that text how there was grace in the Old Testament and there was law in the Old Testament as well. There's grace in the New Testament, and there's law in the New Testament as well. We need to understand those passages more carefully. So, we have commands. He says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Sanctification is a $100 theological word that just means I'm setting something apart. And in this case, we are being set apart unto Christ and moving toward maturity. So, in verse, in verse 19, Paul states without question that no man is free. And that once we get into sin and think we can stick our toe in that river of sin and bring it back without harm, it's not going to happen. Now, in verses 20 and 21, For when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. That's not a pretty picture. He's speaking about now, he's going back to our positional relationship in Adam. And I hope you see how he's going back and forth from position to experience. From position to experience. From position to experience. He's not doing it accidentally. He didn't do it to confuse us. He's doing it to drive home the point that our experience should be consistent with our position. So that's why he keeps bringing both of these factors into picture. So the reason for the exhortation in the last part of verse 19, present your members as slaves to righteousness, showing why the command is so necessary and urgent is given in verses 20 and 21. The meaning is clearly this. To be slaves of sin means to be the enemies of righteousness. To become the enemies of sin means to become friends of righteousness. To be devoted to both sin and righteousness at the same time is impossible. This may have been one of the first truths that you learned in your spiritual walk outside of the gospel itself. It probably was. Many believers, for many believers, that's the first truth that when we sin, we lose fellowship with God, we need to confess our sins and get back into fellowship. I have personally been told that that's, that's a misunderstanding of First John, that you don't lose fellowship when you sin. If I'm misunderstanding it, Paul misunderstood it too. Because he says the same thing. You're either in or you're out. You choose. Now, a very good friend and professor of mine wrote on a paper that I wrote about this one time. Well, what you're advocating is spiritual schizophrenia. You're in and you're out. You know, you're in and you're out. All day long. Maybe. Maybe. I've had days like that. <laughs> I've had hours like that, you know, <laughs> haven't you? <clears throat> but that's not the way it's supposed to be. We never, we never take our theology from the abuses of the theology. That, that's always a mistake. We take it from the principle. And the principle is that God is holy. He has nothing to do with unrighteousness. And while John calls it fellowship, koinonia, Paul says you're a slave to one or the other. Take your pick, but you're a slave to one or the other. Now, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and look down on the other. As to the fruit or benefit those people formerly obtained from their slavery to sin, Paul says it consisted of things of which you are now ashamed. Sin leads to death. Once more, this word death is full of meaning here in this chapter, this sixth chapter of Romans. For the unbeliever, the death that is spoken of is permanent separation from God. For the believer whose sins have been forgiven and positionally you'll never have to pay the eternal penalty for those sins. Remember that, according to Paul here, sin's still an issue for the believer. And the believer has to choose moment by moment. Am I going to go back to the life I had in Adam? Or am I going to live with my understanding that my whole being needs to be a servant to righteousness? There's your choice. Now, we may not like that choice. 
a lot of us would like to have a mediating position, at least parts of the day we might like to. Can I just do this much? Because I don't really want to get into and be a slave to sin, but do I really have to do that? Let's make it hit home. Do I really have to submit to my husband's leadership? Do I really have to? You don't know my husband. Do I really have to love him? To love her like Christ loved the church? You didn't didn't hear what she said to me this morning. Okay. Now that it's hit home, which is it going to be? Are you going to be a slave to righteousness and obedience, or are you going to go the other way and be a slave to sin? It's your choice. It's not always an easy thing to do, but there's no middle ground there. And many believers, even within the concept of marriage, want a middle ground. They don't want to love their wives like Christ loved the church. The wife doesn't want to submit to the leadership of her husband like Christ submitted to the leadership of the father. But we still want to walk around, put our tie on on Sunday morning, and act like we're a wonderful believer. But we're a slave to sin. That's just one illustration that I know hit below the belt. But it makes the point, doesn't it? There's no mediating position. You either walk in in fellowship with God and you're obeying what he said to obey, or you're not at any one given moment. That's Paul's point. And finally, in verse 22, as we start to wrap this up, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Now, we do have eternal life positionally the moment that we trust Christ. But John speaks about having life and having it abundantly. So there's there's the possession of eternal life positionally. There's also the enjoyment of the eternal life. And you're not going to enjoy your eternal, your eternal life if you're walking out of fellowship with God. And finally, in verse 23, a verse that I would almost say needs no explanation, but allow me just a few words, if you will, with this most memorized verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life eternal, or eternal life, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice here that This death that's being spoken of in verse 23 is being contrasted to the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. So, again, Paul is going back and forth between our experiential uh, sanctification being in line with the position that we have in in Christ and and, uh, the, the position itself. The wages of sin is death. The, the wages of sin, this phrase means more literally, the wages that are paid by sin. Sin pays wages. Sin has consequences. Oh, we, we would love to think that it doesn't. Sin has consequences. And J. Buzuszewski's very fine text, The Revenge of the Conscience. He, he makes probably the best presentation of this that I've ever seen, that I've ever seen down in writing anyway. Sin has consequences. And our consciences condemn us of that. The Holy Spirit works through the conscience to let us know that, that it's not something enjoyable. Even though the flesh, this body of corruption or satanic influences may try to convince us as hard as, it, as hard as they may that you're going to enjoy doing that Paul says no it brings consequences and it's wages that is paid is death now the contrast death here is contrasted to eternal life 
So in the context, this death must refer to eternal death or spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. You'll see here that we deserve death. That's a wage paid. If you work for someone and you go at the end of the week and they were to write you a check, you may say thank you to them. But that's something that's owed to you. And you ought to say thank you to them for giving you the opportunity to have the job. But that's something that's owed to you. Wages, sin pays wages. But this very wonderful verse tells us in the end that you don't deserve to go to heaven. Now you may object and say, well, no, I trusted Christ. I did the right thing. Yeah, you did. But even then, nobody deserves to go. Salvation is not simply by faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. Grace, always grace. So as the chapter ends, take special note of the fact that we earn spiritual death, but eternal life is a gift. Well, on to chapter 7 next time. Heavenly Father, we're appreciative of the opportunity that you've afforded us tonight to take a, a brief look at this most important section of Scripture. Father, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us of our need to say no to sin, that he would encourage us by our understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that, that while we don't say no to sin as often as we'd like to, the Holy Spirit's ministry can make it possible for us to say no. Father, when we get close to that river of sin and want to just stick our toe in, Father, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would yank us back, that we would say no, that we would be slaves of righteousness, of you and your righteousness, and not slaves to sin. And we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.